So as we come to the reading of the word this morning, let's just create some breathing room. For the word to breathe and breathe through us and in us. And I'd like you to imagine as we read these two passages together, I out loud, you silently, as if the first passage is just a giant inhale, just taking it all in as gift and grace, as life and light. And the second passage is a praise psalm. And think of that as like an exhale, like we're just exhaling the breath of praise. It's been said that adoration is the breath of life. So we just make space here to hear and breathe in and breathe out the word of life given to us. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are his daughters and sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father, So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. Can you just breathe that in, Abba? And exhale, Father. That's the spirit life coming. Abba, Father, what a gift. We receive it, Abba, Father. And now exhaling our praise like adoration, the breath of life, from Psalm 148. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise him in the heights above. Praise him, all his angels. Praise him, all his heavenly hosts. Praise him, sun and moon. Praise him, all you shining stars. Praise him, you highest heavens, and you waters above the skies. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for at his command they were created. And he established them forever and ever. He issued a decree that will never pass away. Praise the Lord from the earth, you great sea creatures and all ocean depths lightning and hail, snow and clouds, stormy winds that do his bidding, you mountains and all hills, fruit trees and all cedars, wild animals and all cattle, small creatures and flying birds, kings of the earth and all nations, you princes and all rulers of the earth, young men and women, old men and children, Let them praise the name of the Lord, for his name alone is exalted. His splendor is above the earth and the heavens, and he has raised up for his people a horn or a strength of salvation, the praise of all his faithful servants of Israel, the people close 
to his heart. Praise the Lord. Thanks, Beth. And thank you, Bob. Turned into the human handrail guy. (laughs) 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 Ten. (laughs) Good job. Um, We probably could shut that door if you're feeling a little cold. I know Gil's feeling a little cold over there. Thank you, Bob. friend of Tony and Gary, and they said, hey, would you want Bob to ever come and lead? And he's played for us before, but what a treasure he is. And so, um, and a little nostalgic to go back to some of these like old Maranatha songs. He's like, is that okay? And I was like, oh, I love that. So um, anyway, really sweet. I'm noticing there's a, a lack of surfers here today. <laughs> It's like quite the close to the end of the year. So um, El Nino, you know, I mean, the news is like, oh, no. And all surfers are like, yes, it's like our year. So um, anyways, safety for all those that are out there right now. Um, I It's so sweet. It was so fun to have Jesse up here singing um, with Bob because Jesse was telling me it's a little bit like getting to surf with Kelly Slater for him to get up here and sing with Bob. But I just love that. Thank you for being willing to do that, Jesse. I, we're on the verge of a new year, and I thought we would kind of take some time and just be reflective as we come to the end of this year. Um, before we do, I have one quick announcement. Um, we as a church, we're an elder-led church, and each year we have, well, elders come on that serve a three-year term. And uh, this year, stepping down from the board is uh, Elder Phil Culp, which he doesn't really look like an elder. I don't think you have any gray hair, Phil. <laughs> but, um, but Phil has been such a faithful elder and overseen. He's been our treasurer for a number of years and um, just been such a gift to our church. And I'm hoping he, he comes back on. We'll give you a short little sabbatical and then... <laughs> Um, so Phil is stepping off, but nominated for this year is um, Corey Kelso. And, um, right? And so, but uh, listen, let's not just assume this is a done deal. There's an evaluation process that happens. <laughs> so uh, the way that this works is that we will, in two weeks, um, vote on Corey for membership. Um, gives you time to process. If you have questions or anything like that, that's kind of our, our protocol. So that... We'll be going out. You'll receive an email and have a chance to vote yay or nay. But um, I'm voting yay. But uh, <laughs> anyway, um, just want to let you guys know that. Just um, but excited about that possibility for us. Um, how many of you guys have a sort of end of the year ritual of evaluating the year that went before you? Anybody here? Okay, yeah, like a number of you. It, it's um, it's kind of an opportunity to, to glance back. In fact, maybe a, a gift of technology is people are, will often say, go back through your phone and, or your pictures and just scroll through the year. It's kind of an interesting thing, right? Like you go back to last January and go, oh, yeah, right? Weird how some of those things can like, like sneak off of our radar eventually. I was thinking... Oh, I went to Spain last year, <laughs> like, right? That was like, seems so long ago, but to go like, wow, in June, we got to do that, some wonderful things. 
And, um, and you have now, you know, all these kind of life coach. It's like a whole thing, right? If you're on social media, all these people that have kind of this, um, a little plan of evaluation. And, um, and most of those I'm not like totally drawn to, but there's one person in particular, and I couldn't tell you why, but I just love her, is Mel Robbins. Does anybody follow Mel Robbins? Okay, she's like such a kick. I think maybe she's like such like, go get them, but um, kind of real practical. And she came up with this thing where she was walking you through these six questions for the year. I was like, I'm going to do it. It's free. I downloaded it. It's not free. You have to put your email in there, which means they got you. But um, but anyway, so I, I was kind of going through her list of questions, and it was like there was a little simple epiphany for me. She started by asking, what are the hardest things you did last year? Question one. What are the hardest things that you had to do? And so take a minute for each one of you. If you were to look back on this last year, what are the hardest things you had to do? And you think back on that, whether family, whether it's health, whether it's work-related, challenges, responsibilities, things that we carry. But probably for all of us, it's not too difficult to go find two or three immediately hard things that we had to deal with. Her next question is, what were the most meaningful things that happened last year. And as I weighed through those two things, what's interesting is I started to see this sort of convergence of the two. That the things that were most difficult also tend to be the things that give our life the most meaning. In thinking through our life and this gift of a life, we, we realize we only have so much of it, Right? I mentioned during Advent, as we celebrate Christmas, this reminder that we have one more Christmas, but also one less Christmas. That that each of us has a certain number of days. And that the wise count their days. The psalmist, I think it's actually Moses that wrote this psalm, Psalm 90, writes, teach us to number our days carefully so that we may develop wisdom in our hearts. Something about numbering, evaluating, reflecting upon our days helps us become wise. That we learn how to steward our time and to use it to its best advantage. Last year I did these little calculations and figured out I had 13,294 days left. (laughs) Which means this year, since it's not a full year... 12,930 days left, assuming the best, right? Like, that's, I mean, that is an average, but, um, but to go, yeah, less days, that's me kind of chick- checking one off each day and realizing that, again, this life is precious, that each day is significant and each day has value. How do we invest this life? How do we use it so that we are becoming wise? And, you know, I I think the truth is a lot of us go through our life not counting our days. In fact, doing the very opposite, pretending that we will live forever, right? That life goes on indefinitely, at least for us. We're the one person that's going to beat the odds. But the truth is, this is the reality for each one of us. And thinking about our time, thinking about the legacy that we leave, thinking about the investment that we make, 
I read this morning that uh, WordPress, you can get a 100-year subscription to WordPress. This is like a blog. They like take care of your online information. So you can buy a 100-year subscription to WordPress for $38,000. A way of like sort of prolonging your legacy, right? <laughs> As I read it, I'm thinking, is WordPress going to be around in 100 years? I have a feeling it's going to look very different. But this sense of trying to create value, to hold on to what we have, to, to look at the work that we've done and to hopefully make it last. How do we do this in such a way that there's intention behind it or it's meaningful? Most of us, as we think about our lives, it's interesting. We take our bearings, and I don't mean to go too far down this road, but it's an interesting thing. We take our bearings off of the stars that we find ourselves weighing through our life based on days, which is this revolution of our planet around itself, its axis, and years as we cycle around this sun outside of ourselves. It's like how we get our coordinates, our, our bearings are taken from these, this solar system around us that we find ourselves in. And it's an interesting thing if you look at this historically. If you go way back, most people understood time itself as just this circularity. You just go around and around and around and around and eventually die. It was the Israelites who actually came up with a very different way of understanding time. That the the nation of Israel were the ones who helped us understand time is linear, like a beginning and an end and a journey in between. And a lot of that is rooted in the fact that we have this story, this text that is showing us as a people on a journey. And I'm getting this from Thomas Cahill, who wrote, like, How the Irish Saved Civilization. But in his book on the Jewish people, he says, In other ancient religions, life was seen as an endless cycle. But with the birth of what became the Jewish religion, time became linear. And through Abraham, the individual interaction between human and the divine becomes personal. And this is where I'm going with this. I, I think that sometimes as we're trying to establish meaning and value, you see it in this sort of endless circularity, this day after day. We can almost become wearisome with it. But in this reshaping of our lives as pilgrimage, that we're traveling and we're on a journey, it helps us understand that there's a progression to this, that there's, a, there's important stages of development that we go through, and that there's a God behind all of this with a purpose and a meaning and an intention for our lives. We hear that beautifully in our psalm this morning. That all of creation is put together so intricately with such intentionality. And the truth is, we all fall into that intentionality. Which means every single one of our lives has opportunity for meaning. All of our lives matter. It's not just simply, I can be whatever I want to be. But instead, am I being true to who I've been called to be, who I was designed to be. And I don't think that it's random that these hard things in our life and these meaningful things in our life intersect. Because this is what I would say. I think this journey that each one of us is on is one specifically designed for us in order to transform us, to make us more and more who we were designed to be. 
That's the opportunity. I um, taught this class on leadership and formation this last semester. And in that class, I had the students write what we called an NPO paper, a need, a problem, or an opportunity. They had to identify in their life a need or a problem or an opportunity and then talk about leadership through that, but not just leadership, but their own formation. How is that need, problem, or opportunity forming each one of them? Because this is the interesting thing, is that the need or the problem or the opportunity is probably all three things at once. The hardest things in our life present themselves as needs or problems, but every single one of them we can reframe and see as an opportunity, an opportunity for us to grow in this trajectory that God has us on. This is a journey about us becoming more and more like Christ. And as we pursue happiness, we pursue pleasure, we make these things the ends in themselves, what happens is we find ourselves losing out on the deep opportunities. The ones of real meaning, the ones that have eternal value, the ones that form us into something bigger, right, instead of smaller than ourselves. This opportunity to each day choose a larger story. This pursuit of happiness. I, I, nobody speaks more like succinctly to this than Viktor Frankl, right? Viktor had, he had gone through and survived a concentration camp and writes about meaning and purpose with such authority. And he says this about success. He says, success, like happiness, cannot be pursued. It must ensue. And it only does so as the unintended side effect of one's personal dedication to a cause greater than oneself, or as the byproduct of one's surrender to a person other than oneself. Speaking as somebody who had survived such trauma, that the value of this understanding our life, not as this pursuit of comfortability or pleasure, but as a way of surrendering our life to something greater, he's going, that is where the meaning happens. And in his words, he would say the meaning ends up being far more significant than the pleasure. That happiness pursued in and of itself is fleeting and almost like we can never grasp it fully. But that what we find is success is this way, this posture of surrendering and living obediently into life, surrendering our rights and instead living for something greater than ourselves, trusting that we're being led. This is where the deep work happens. Somebody asked me recently from our church, Jeff, what are your thoughts on evolution? And I was saying, you know, in a full disclosure, like I was going, I don't have a problem with the how. I, for me, I'm, I'm actually personally very comfortable with lots and lots of years. It's not the how, but it's that this more primary question, did God make it? And if the answer is yes, that changes everything. We can argue about the how, right? But to me, that's not the interesting part. The question is, is this God's desire 
God's design, God's intention. And what I see is a world that reflects that in so many ways. The intricacy, the intentionality, the purpose, but also the beauty in the world. That God is doing this thing and it's happening all around us, but that we ourselves are included in this. We are a part of the design. And that we can look at our lives through that lens and see God's hand at work. Not just in general terms, but in ways very specific to you. When I think back about this year, the the sort of hard things I would have liked to have avoided... Well, I think I mentioned this already. My, my spiritual director asked me this question. She said, Jeff, if you could get rid of the discomfort, but you also lost the lessons that that gave you, would you do it? And my immediate response was no. That what I've learned so far outweighs the discomfort. I look back on the discomfort and think, oh, it would have been nice to avoid that. Yet at the same time, what it's shown me, it's stuff that I would hold now so dear. As we're going through our life and looking at it like this, it is this posture of trust that God is going to lead us in directions that we wouldn't necessarily choose for ourselves. When we set out and want to attain our goals, It's wise for us to hold them loosely because the truth is God knows what he's doing. Even when we're confused by it, even when we second guess, like, are you sure, God? He's saying, trust me. God is doing a deep work in us, and it's seen in our text today as we look at Galatians. He's doing this work to turn us into his heirs. This way that God looks at us goes far beyond what we would set out for ourselves. Not just children, but heirs. And that God has this intentionality for our lives, even when we don't. I I love this from Thomas Merton when he talks about who we are. He, He starts this little excerpt on identity by saying that a tree gives glory to God by being a tree. For in being what God means it to be, it is obeying him. It consents, so to speak, to his creative love. It is an expressing an idea which is in God and which is not distinct from the essence of God. And therefore, a tree imitates God by being a tree. And where he's going, you have creation worshiping God by being itself, by doing what it's going to do. But I, I read this from the poet David White, and I, um, there's a book of his that I read kind of, it's in my rotation, but it's on pilgrimage, and, and he writes this. He says, we are the one part of creation that can refuse to be itself. Our bodies can be present in our work, but our hearts, minds, and imaginations can be placed firmly in neutral or engaged elsewhere. Does that ring true as you think about last year? Think about how much of last year do you feel like you were truly being yourself and how often instead we're responding in anxiety or self-protection, comparison, insecurity, judgment, criticism of others, all those other things that come 
as these like deficient ways of self-protection. That so often we live our life avoiding this true self. And there's reason for it. It's, we live in a world that, that kind of can punish you for being who you really are. We see vulnerability as weakness. We see authenticity as something to be scrutinized. So instead we present ourselves as like having it all together. So much of us spend this immense amount of time trying to look on the outside like we've got this all figured out. And the truth is, God's not interested in any of that. In fact, like Merton would call that our false self, this image. In fact, Merton would go so far as to say, God doesn't love that image of yourself because it's not real. Right? This way that I want to be perceived. That God loves our hearts, but loves it like a father that chooses it, like somebody adopting a child. Let me read our passage again, Galatians 4, 4 through 7, which to me segues so beautifully between Christmas and New Year's. He says, when the time came to completion, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are our sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then God has made you an heir. This to me is this passage that speaks to us that goes like going into this year, this is how you carry yourself. Like an heir. Somebody chosen, somebody adopted. And not in the like Daddy Warbucks publicity thing when he adopts Annie, right? Like where he doesn't even know her, like just give me an orphan. This is God saying, no, 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 I choose you. That God sees each one of us and his heart is moved towards each one of us. It's such a powerful image to me because adoption means you don't belong. You have no family. That you're on the outside of that looking in. That orphan is chosen to belong within the family. They're invited to the table. And that choosing, I think sometimes we, we kind of don't understand, all right, choice. It's like it's done for us. Like, where is the freedom in it? But, but the truth is, it's, it's this way of God, like, bestowing his approval, affirmation, his vision for us. In Ephesians, Paul says basically the same thing like this. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in love before him. He predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ for himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace that he lavished on us in the beloved one. This outpouring of grace, this approval, this redemption, this restoration, this is what we celebrate in Christmas. It's what we celebrate in the incarnation. Then in this swirling chaos of planets and solar systems and cosmos, God's like, I see you, I come to you, I die for you, I lay down my life for you. It's powerful. And to receive that, 
It's not just simply this matter of us staying as little children. It's growing up. And and the childlike part is right. I I remember one time I was in Yosemite and there was a family next to me that was visiting from Israel. And and as they're speaking, I remember just hearing the little children talking to their father going, Abba, Abba, and thinking, oh, the like tenderness. I think I'll always remember just that little childlike, whimsical way of saying their father's name. That we are invited in like children, but with an expectation that we grow. In fact, if we back up a few verses earlier, he says, Now that as long as now I say that as long as the heir is a child, he differs in no way from a slave, though he's the owner of everything. Instead he's under the guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. And that scripture as part of the story that we're given in scripture gives us this law. It gives us this identity. It says this is who the people are. They were coming out of slavery and they received this law that says this is, this is who we are. I'll often say that to my kids when, you know, we go, here's the rules. They're like, my friends don't have those rules. So I'm like, well, we're tacklings. Sorry. <laughs> right? They're like, I don't like that rule. And I'm like, I don't care. Um, <laughs> These are the rules, right? This is who we are. And that identity, that we've been given that identity. But Paul's saying, but then we grow. We grow into wisdom. And that our lives, the difficulties of our lives are helping us mature. And that God does that by giving us more and more opportunity for us to be ourselves. My... um, my daughter just got a part in the play that's going to be happening at the high school, and she applied for this really big role, and we're constantly, as her parents, going like, don't worry if you don't get it, it's no big deal, blah, 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 right? And she got it, and we're like, yes! And then you're like, oh, man, like, now you have to do it. <laughs> and, and the truth is, she's not ready. She just has a teacher that's like, you've got this. She was chosen for that role. It's too big for her, but, but not eventually. And the truth is, like, as we think about next year, God goes, I've chosen next year for you. And the truth is, it's too big, but it's not. And God says, like, he goes there with us. He wants to show us who we are, who he sees us to be. And if I'm constantly trying to take measurements from that by what everybody else thinks, then I'm always in this performative mode. I'm always trying to prove that I have worth and value. And you see what a tremendous gift these verses are. Like the audition is over. You're no longer performing. You've been adopted. God says, I choose you. But then he says, grow. As opportunity comes, he says, lean into it. As life becomes hard, he says, trust me. And it's so easy for us to fall back into too small of a story. So easy for us to retreat to what feels familiar 
in Luke chapter 16, Jesus says, whoever is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. And whoever is unrighteous in very little is also unrighteous in much. So you've not been faithful with the unrighteous money. Who will trust you with what is genuine? That's a little bit of accountability for us. This is what happens as you become heirs is you're given responsibility. And a little bit at a time. But what you see is God saying, what I care about is how you're handling what I've given you. Are you using it well? Sometimes I think, well, if you gave me more, then I could use it in a better way, right? But he's like, it's not how the metrics work. He's simply saying, with what I've given you, what have you done with it? And to see that, not from this like cruel, uncaring father, but as a parent who's going, I want the very best for you. This opportunity to prove ourselves, not to God, but in a way to ourselves. I just got my course evaluations and uh, I didn't realize how much I cared until all of a sudden I'm opening it up going like, oh, this is like honest feedback from students. And um, I got really good reviews. And I probably wouldn't use this example if I got bad ones. <laughs> to be honest. Like, but, you know, like I realize how much of me is still looking to answer that question. Is what I have have worth and value? And I think God gives us opportunities where we're able to see it. Gives us compliments that we're like, just so longing for along the way. But I think there's a caution in those things as well. Those little affirmations don't last. They're not enough. They only say, yeah, you did a good job this last semester, but next semester we'll see. And and retraining our minds in some ways to, to rest in the value of how God sees us as he presents us with situations where we have to reach and push, right? That's God going, I trust you. I trust you with this. Giving us an opportunity to see ourselves in a new light. The warning in the verse following our passage in Galatians cautions us about going back to old ways. In verse 9, it says, But now, since you know God, or rather have become known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elements? Do you want to be enslaved to them all over again? One of the questions that we should be asking ourselves going into next year is, what are the things I want to stop doing? Think about that for a second. Where do you see yourself getting pulled into too small of a story? Avoiding opportunities because it feels too risky, too vulnerable. What if I fail? What are other people going to say about me? Looking at other people's lives and thinking, oh, if I just had that, then I would be fine. Or if I just had that, then I would be happy. 
all these ways of like evaluating our worth. And Paul's warning us, like, you're adopted, stop living like you're not. You're chosen, stop living insecurely. Stop trying to go back to these old forms of conditional love. But the opportunity sits side by side with that. So much of sin is living in this small little world. It's not like this, like God keeping track of all the wrong things you did, but instead like all the ways that we hold ourselves back. The invitation of this is to something abundant. Something filled with joy and with meaning. This is the opportunity. And think about this next question. Here's the things you want to let go of, but but what are the things that you're doing right now that are giving life to you? What are the things that feed your soul? What are the things that you need to keep doing? Or maybe you found yourself not doing them as much as you know you should. I like that little phrase that says, I didn't stop surfing because I got old. I got old because I stopped surfing. And there's like certain ways that we live that like keep our hearts full. Things that we can often like get lazy about. Setting aside time in the morning to listen to God's word. Spend time in prayer. Spend time in reflection. Looking deeper into our life. Seeing what God is up to there. I think what might go along with that as well is, are there relationships that you have that pull you more into that larger story? So it's not just what you do. And what you do is critical. How you spend your days is how you spend your life, as Annie Dillard said. But the people around you that are going to draw you in to that bigger story. When we talk about our church and what we're here to do, hopefully that's part of what happens in community here. We talk about our church being a safe place to heal, and we all need healing, but also a brave space to grow which means it should be a place where it's okay to fail. It's okay to take risks. It's okay to not have it all figured out. A place where we're pushing each other into that larger story. I love Sally going to Cuba. Sally just is a learner, grower. It's just like leans into opportunities. But maybe next year some of you want to go to Cuba with her. We'd love it, or to participate in ministry, to give back to the community, to help out at the cold weather shelter that we've been supporting this month. We've needed it. It's been so good to see us growing into these generous stories. And Jesus tells us when we surrender to this and we start living in this way, not only are we becoming heirs, but we're becoming what Jesus would say, friends. It's like, I no longer call you servants, right? That was the time before. That was the little children. 
But we grow into this friendship with Christ, to this relationship. And what we do is we start becoming the ones that are pulling other people up. That really is the goal. How are we pulling other people into their story? Taking the attention off of ourselves and putting that attention on others. The truth is, we can't lead people where we haven't gone. We have to be like leaning in to do the work. But I think when we live with this freedom from constantly trying to prove our worth, we're actually able to see people around us. People that have time to, or, you know, see into us, but then we end up having the same opportunity. Thomas Merton goes on and he says this, the secret of my full identity is hidden in him. He alone can make me who I am, or rather who I will be when at last I fully begin to be. But unless I desire this identity and work to find it with him and in him, the work will never be done. The way of doing it is a secret I can learn from no one else but him. There's no way of attaining to the secret without faith. But contemplation is the greater and more precious gift, for it enables me to see and understand the work that he wants done. And when I think about this next year to me, this is what stirs my heart. I want to continue to learn more and more fully who I am in light of who God is showing me to be. Not for my own gain, but for others. That when God gives me that sort of freedom, I can then participate in this world in the way that he did with generosity and compassion. And Paul gets at this tension beautifully in Philippians 2. He says, Therefore, my dear friends, just as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but even more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is working in you, both to will and to work, according to his good purpose. And so I think as we go into this next year, the best thing that we can do is go into it with an open posture of surrender. But with a recommitment to being in that place of surrender, walking that path with Christ. John Wesley would do this every New Year's. He would do a a sort of recovenant. It was an opportunity as they had lapped the sun one more time around that orbit, they would come back to this place and recommit each year. And I thought we might do that together as a congregation, to just say this prayer together of Wesley's. It's been um, slightly modernized over time so that these and the thous aren't there. But, but this is his prayer. And I thought, if, if you would like to say this with me, um, I'd love for us to pray this together as we go in to the next year. So pray with me. I am no longer my own, but yours. Put me to what you will. Place me with whom you will. Put me to doing. Put me to suffering. Let me be put to work for you or set aside for you. Praised for you or criticized for you. Let me be full. Let me be empty. Let me have all things. Let me have nothing. 
I freely and fully surrender all things to your glory and service. And now, O wonderful and holy God, creator, redeemer, and sustainer, you are mine and I am yours. So be it. And the covenant which I have made on earth, let it also be made in heaven. Amen. Would you stand with me? And as we go into the new year, 2024, I pray that God would bless you and keep you. God would make his face shine on you in this coming year and be gracious to you. That he would lift up his countenance on each one of you and give you peace. God bless you. Thanks for being here, you guys. Happy New Year.